I do invite the rest of you to join me in the book of Romans this morning, if you turn to Romans chapter 8. And Romans 8 has been likened to the diamond on God's ring of salvation. And if we relook at the first four verses of Romans 8, I think we are reminded as to why that would be said and why Romans 8 is so awesome and amazing. Look with me again at these words, Romans 8 verses 4 to 1, to see this great and magnificent God doing these great and magnificent things for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And one of the things that really stands out, if not the thing that really stands out in these verses, is what we learn not just about what we gain, but about who God is and how great God is. You can't separate the two. And last time, really, our focus was on on how great what we've received, how great this gift is we've received, but we don't want to lose sight of the fact that what it tells us about who God is and how great He is as the great giver, as the great Savior. In fact, if we can relook at those verses and see clearly God doing His work, I would like to do that. In verse 1, we see the great work of God the Son. It says, Therefore there is now no condemnation, strongly stated, none whatsoever for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as we're united with Christ by faith, is what we've learned already in Romans, when that happens... We're no longer under condemnation. God the Son has done that for us. And how great is God the Son? Then we see something of God the Spirit in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life, speaking of the Holy Spirit, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so we have the Spirit applying the work of the Son, if you will, bringing us freedom, and we are now free. How great is God the Spirit? And then God the Father is shown to be behind all of this in verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son. We know it's the Father because He sends His own Son to do all of this great work through His Son applied by the Spirit. And you just have to step away from it and say... God is great. Yes, indeed, our salvation is great and it comes from Him, but we certainly should stop and say, this God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, this God, this triune God, is amazing. Last time we didn't talk much about the Trinity. I think uh, in the first service I mentioned about how great this triune God is. Second service, I, I praise God in my prayer, if memory serves me, for, for, for God being so great to us and working as the Father, as the Son, as the Spirit. But we really didn't take much time to talk about the Trinity, even though clearly in the passage we see Father, Son, and Spirit. And I want to do that this morning. 
And so we will pause our exposition of Romans and we'll step back. Having been moved by Romans chapter 8, we didn't talk about how great God is so much last time. I want to do that this morning and I want to talk about the Trinity this morning. I'd like to give you some reasons why we would do this this morning, as I've already alluded to some of them, but I have a list of reasons why we would take time and not move on to Romans 8.5. One reason would be because at least my generation, I can't speak for your generation if you're not part of my generation. Some of you are the generation above or above that. Some of you are below mine or below that. But no doubt you're all affected by my generation because you're here and I'm speaking. <laughs> okay. So my generation and those around my generation have been very suspicious of creeds and confessions. Okay? Speaking for myself, I've been very suspicious of creeds and confessions. That's a reason why we should talk about the Trinity. Because here we gather, we're just Bible Christians. We don't need history, we don't need creeds, we don't need confessions because we believe the Bible is sufficient. And by the way, we do. But that's a reason why we should talk about the Trinity. I grew up in a church... And primarily for me, it was knowing when to stand up and when to sit down and when to recite the right portions of the creed and so I would fit in with everyone else. And I know plenty of you would fit the same kind of category as I do. Then, outside of that church that didn't preach the gospel, that didn't preach God's Word, outside of that church, I was converted because someone actually loved me enough to tell me the truth about who Christ is. And I got converted. I became a Christian. And in my mind, I thought, Bible, good. Christ, good. Creeds, confessions, bad. Because I associated them with a church that didn't preach the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Anybody else ever experience anything like that? Well, I know enough of you to know that it's true for some of you. And and we're living in an age where That's kind of how we think as churches. We don't need that stuff. Well, while history is a horrible master, it can be very, very helpful as a teacher. We do want to learn from history. What we don't want to be is so arrogant as to say, Christians throughout history have not been able to figure out the truth. But in our age, we have, because we, and that's why we only have the Bible. That seems out of balance. If God has given gifted teachers to the church, which He has, we would want to say, has this been something Christians have worked through and talked about and benefited from? Well, the answer is yes. Now when I go back in my mind to those creeds and confessions, I hear some of the statements being unclear, yes. Perhaps some of those things that were said were just unbiblical, But so much of what was said was explicitly biblical. Like the Trinity. Like the reality of God eternally existing as the one true God in three persons. And so one reason I want to talk about this today is for us to say, hey, let's look at the Bible and the Bible alone as our authority, which we'll do today. But let's not ignore history and let's not ignore what has happened before us because that would be arrogant and naive. Fair enough? Another reason why we'd want to talk about the Trinity today 
Another reason would be so that we can fulfill the great commandment. In other words, so that we can love God. The greatest commandment ever, according to Jesus, is that you would love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Matthew 22. We won't take the time to go there. But Jesus answers the question, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It includes all of you, but for now, I want to emphasize mind. You love God with your mind, with how you think. We would all agree here today, if we're at least professing Christians, that we should love God. But so many times we think of loving God as is only a feeling. Feelings are good and important, and you should use your feelings to love God, no doubt. But part of what's missing so often is how we think. We should think about God the right way. If God is the one true God who eternally exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then we need to be thinking that way. Lest we not really be loving God. Who's God? Well, we're going to look into that so that we can love Him, so that we can honor Him. Interestingly enough, it's a little bit dated. This is back in the late 80s, but I don't think much has changed then. A pretty in-depth study was done by a sociologist surveying eight of the most prolific evangelical presses publishing books. The finding was that almost 90% of all books published by Christian publishers were about self. They weren't about God. This is pretty amazing because the greatest commandment isn't to love yourself. The greatest commandment is to love God with all that you are. And so perhaps this is a good wake-up call for us, if it's still true today, which I would submit is, in light of the fact that Paul said, in the latter times, people will be lovers of self. As Christians, we want to be lovers of God. And that means we need to know who He is and not just feel good about something that we think about Him. And so we want to talk about the Trinity for that reason. Another reason I'd want to talk about the Trinity this morning so that we can truly worship God. So that we can truly worship God. We won't take the time to go there to the passage, but in John chapter 4, we learn some strategic things about worship. Remember Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman and He is kind to her and He is truthful with her, but He is also corrective with her. And He says to her, that the Jews, i.e. not the Samaritans, have salvation. They're the ones that truly worship God. Now, you think she was sincere in her commitment to being a Samaritan? That's unquestionable. They were very sincere. They would fight with the Jews. They were so serious. But Jesus told her that salvation is of the Jews and He spoke to her about worshiping God in truth. Remember, the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible and they didn't believe in anything else. And Jesus says, if you're really going to worship God, He says you'll worship God in spirit, but that's talking about a time where we're not going to debate about where to go. For now, let's emphasize the fact he says, in truth, you need to know the full picture of who God is, lest you're disqualified from worship. 
So we can say, well, I found a verse in the Bible and it talks about God and that's enough for me to worship God. Well, it doesn't take very long if you take that approach. You're going to be just like the Samaritan woman who Jesus confronts. Who is God? What does the Bible say about who God is? The Bible, all of it. And I would submit to you what we see when we see from beginning to end is the same thing Christians now for many, many, many years have seen. We see that there is one God. And He exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, in light of what Jesus says, and if that, this is true, I would suggest to you, you have to believe in the Trinity to really worship God. Another reason why this is an important study for us is so that we can avoid the sin of idolatry. So that we can avoid the sin of idolatry. Isaiah 46, 9 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like, he, like me. Think about that. There's only one God. If there's only one God, then it's super easy to be an idolater. Because everything other than worshiping that one true God is idolatry. Whether the focus is on yourself as the priority or some other gods, idolatry is just default mode. We've learned that in Romans chapter 1 anyway. So we've got to know who this one true God is. Otherwise, we're worshiping a false God. We're worshiping a God of our imaginations. I liked what A.W. Tozer said when he said, the essence of idolatry is wrong thinking about God. Or something like that, he said. The essence of idolatry is wrong thinking about God or not thinking rightly about God. Someone else said, rather insightfully, what you think of when you hear the word God, first thought to your mind, is the most important thing about you. I thought that was pretty stirring. It's not biblical, it's not unbiblical, but it got me thinking. When I say God, what comes to mind? It was Augustine who said, Something along these lines. If you try to fully comprehend the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. Right? Because you're not God. You can't know everything. It just can't be done. If you try to fully comprehend the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. But he also said, if you deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. Drawing the line in the sand saying, this is crucial that you know who God is. If default mode is idolatry, if you don't know who He is, and this is who He really is, or you deny who He really is, you are an idolater. That stirs my mind as well. It makes me want to say, all right, I'm pretty motivated. I want to know. I want to study this. I do want to pay attention to history, even though it's not my authority. More importantly, I want to pay attention to what does the Bible say? So that when you say God to me, I think the right thing. So that I live for Him, so that I love Him, so that I worship Him. Another motivation would be, or reason to study the Trinity, would be protection. Protection. 
that you would protect yourself from lies about God. It's a, it's a self-defense mechanism. If you know who God is, then you certainly don't listen to or you don't believe things that are not true about God. You're not easy pickings. You're well-informed. It's a great defense. Strangely enough, in our day of wanting nothing to do with history, nothing to do with confessions, nothing to do with creeds, we'll just figure it out ourselves because we're so smart. Something unprecedented has happened in evangelical history. Absolutely unprecedented. We have key leaders, key, key, key leaders, saying Mormons are Christians. Say what? What? Mormons who, who, who believe that, that God was once a man like you and like me, and if you work hard enough, you will become like Him and rule your own planet too? They're Christians? And yet I'll never forget someone come, came onto church one Sunday. They were so happy. They moved to a different state now, so I'll talk about them. <laughs> Sincere man came to, he was so excited, he said, you'll, you'll never guess what happened. I said, try me. <laughs> Some Mormons came to my house, and did you know they're Christians too? I said, oh, really? Yeah, I told them that I believed that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And, 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 I, and I, I told them that I believe in salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And, and they agreed with me. And at that point in time, I felt like a bad pastor. There was something in me that wanted to start standing up and sitting down at the right time and reciting creeds and confessions every Sunday. So at least they would have it locked in their mind that there's only one true God who's always been God. And they would be thinking the right way. At least to ask a bigger and more important question on one level. Let me say it this way for some shock value perhaps. More important than the cherished truths of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the fact that there's only one God. Because if you don't believe there's only one God, you're an idolater and it doesn't matter if you believe in sola fide or whatever you want to call it. We need to come back to knowing who God is. And yes, then, because there's only one true God, we do believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we will, we will herald it. But we've forgotten about God. And we are easy pickings for false teachers. We don't have a clue. That's why in a Christian bookstore you can go buy a book by T.D. Jakes who denies the Trinity. The false teachers of yesteryear must be laughing in their graves at how stupid we are and how gullible we are. It's absolutely unprecedented and amazing 
And so pastorally, I say, you know, we need, we need, we need to stop and, and, and not just have me say, isn't it amazing that the triune God orchestrates our redemption and say just about that and that's all last Sunday in Romans chapter 8. I want to say that, but I want to say, do, do, we even, do, do you even know the implications of that? Or do, do we know who God is that saves us? One final reason. I got through two of four points first hour, so we'll, we'll, we'll speed it up here, I promise. One final motivation, and that's for your spiritual growth and for mine. Let's talk about the Trinity. Let's talk about who God really is so that you can grow and so that I can grow. In a passage I refer to a lot, and I'll keep doing it because it's been so significant in my thinking, is Colossians chapter 1. And if you turn there, turn, there, turn there, you'll see what I mean. You won't find the word Trinity in Colossians 1, but you'll see that our spiritual growth has to do with, is related to our knowing who God is. If you had to just talk about what, the general idea of Colossians 1, Paul is praying for the Colossian Christians. He's not praying for their salvation because he's, he's praying for Christians. And so what does he pray for? Well, it's kind of generic. We could generally say there's no debate about the fact he's praying for their spiritual growth. Oh, okay. How do we grow spiritually? Well, here's one way that we overlook sometimes. Let's interrupt his prayer partially through and look at verse 10. It says in verse 10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Would you, I've said this before here. Would, would you please pray that way for me? <laughs> because that's how I pray for you if you're a Christian. Pray for lots of other kinds of things, but that we would be increasing in the knowledge of God. Because that does affect everything. It affects our living. It affects our thinking. It affects our worship. It affects our love. Let's study the Trinity today so we love God in a more biblical, significant way than we did before. Here's a definition of Trinity, and I could have taken it from one of maybe 20 books in my office because no one's trying to rewrite or come up with a creative definition of Trinity. There's no need for that. It's, it's us ignoring history. You're one syllable away from a heretic, you know. It's just no need to rewrite it. But here's a definition that might help you. This is Bruce Shelley's book, Christian Theology in Plain Language. Within the Godhead, there are three persons who are neither three gods nor three parts of God, but co-equally and co-eternally God. Within the Godhead, there are three persons who are neither three gods nor three parts of God, but co-equally and co-eternally God. I realize this is more like a Bible Institute class than it is a traditional sermon at Omaha Bible Church, but this is significant for us because we're talking about God. One more thing before we get to the sermon. And the sermon doesn't start, time doesn't start until I get to the sermon, right? One more thing. Let me walk you through what's considered to be an ancient diagram representing the truth about God, specifically the triune God. If you have a pen and paper, I'll ask you to write this down. 
somebody said after first service, I didn't come to art class. I came to hear a sermon pastor, and uh, they were just giving me a hard time. I said, next week we'll use crayons. So if you have a pen or a pencil, you want to write this down unless you already know it. But as we work through the Scriptures and say, who is God? Well, He's one God, and He exists eternally in three persons. Not three parts of God, not making up God, but three distinct persons. There's a helpful diagram that Christians came up with a long time ago. I don't know the year. Here we go. Ready? You ready for your art class? And I'm not too good at diagrams. I got a, I got a, a four, a D. I got a D in geometry, and I had to use the powers of persuasion to convince my teacher to give me a better grade so I didn't have to retake it in college. So... Uh, bear with me. I'm not too good at geometry and drawing things like that, but um, eventually I'll get the point across. I mentioned her name in first hour, but this is the one that will go on the radio, so I won't mention it second hour, lest she be famous <laughs> for giving me a grade I didn't deserve. See, I believe in grace because <laughs> I'm a sinner at the core. All right, ready? Write the word God. Draw a triangle around the word God. Not because God is a triangle. I'm afraid sometimes we, we think wrongly about these things. And some of you have already got it figured out because you've heard me do this before, and here it goes anyway. I thought about putting it up on the screen, but then it would be too easy. be too easy for me. I want to make sure I can explain it. I want you to write it down because then you might remember it. God is in the middle. We've got a triangle around the word God. At the top of the triangle, write Father. On the right side or the left side, it doesn't matter. You write sun, and on the other, you guessed it, rocket science, spirit. Okay? So the, the, the three points of the triangle, you have father, son, spirit. You have God written down in the middle. Am I going too fast? Okay. <laughs> then what I would like you to do is point an arrow in from each of the three tips into God, the word God. Okay, so you have an arrow pointing into God. So Father, arrow points to God. Son, arrow points to God. Spirit, arrow points to God. And with each arrow facing in, you can write the word is. Right? The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. One more thing. Draw a circle around the three points of the triangle. And at each portion of the circle, because the circle, if the circle touches the three points, at each section of that circle, you write, is not. Is not, is not, is not. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. I'm going to check your notes on the way out. <laughs> I don't know how this works. I'm with Augustine. If you try to fully comprehend this, you will lose your mind. But I believe if you start with one presupposition, that's what you'll believe about God. And that one presupposition is the Bible is true. If the Bible is true, then that rightly represents the data. There's only one God. And the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct, yet equal, one in purpose. 
It's not illogical. It's more than you can get your mind around, but based upon the biblical data, it is not illogical. How'd you do? Make sense? Okay, at this point in time, you should believe pretty much nothing I've said. Okay? I've said a few things and asked you to open your Bible. You should believe all that part. Right? But so far, you should believe nothing, in a sense, because I haven't proven anything with the Bible. Now we need to do our work. Four biblical realities about God that lead us to believe in the historic doctrine of the Trinity. Four biblical realities that lead us to believe in the historic doctrine of the Trinity as reflected in that diagram. So that we might worship Him, so that we might love Him, so that we might avoid the sin of idolatry, so that we might appreciate creeds and confessions insofar as they're biblical, so that we might be increasing in our knowledge of God, so that ultimately we could say back in Romans 8, 1, where it says, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We can say, you know what, I liked it before and now I like it even better. I praise God like I never did before because now I have at least a better understanding of how God, the triune God, worked. That the Father sent the Son and the Spirit applied the work of the Son to me as the believer. What an amazing, amazing God this is. And then we start adding other passages and we go to like Acts chapter 4 and we learn about how, how this, all of this is orchestrated in eternity past. It's, it's even more amazing that it, that, that it, among the, the perfect Godhead, the triune God, perfectly wise, working out this plan of redemption for us, and it just becomes more than we can even get our minds around, but you say, it's good. It's even more pro- profound than we imagined. First biblical reality that leads me to believe in the Trinity is the oneness of God. The oneness of God. If you turn to Deuteronomy 6.4, uh, it's a great place to start. Deuteronomy 6.4, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you don't have Deuteronomy 6.4 marked, it might be a, a good, good move. And I'll explain why. Uh, if we could talk about Deuteronomy 6.4 every week, I probably would. I hope it's implied every week. Deuteronomy 6.4, if you're a little Jewish boy or a little Jewish girl, it might be the very first thing you ever learn. And I think we might actually do... Uh, uh, The right thing to have this be true if you're a little Christian boy or a little Christian girl. The essence of everything is wrapped up in Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel. It's called the Shema sometimes or the Shema from the Hebrew word hear. Here's a declaration. Listen up, everybody. This is like three stars and an exclamation point. This is foundational, groundational. Let's make up words and make it sound even more significant. The most important thing in the whole world that you'll ever know. The most important thought you'll ever think. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Crucial to everything. Building everything else upon this foundation. There's only one God. And then we look at some other important passages like Isaiah 45 and Isaiah 43. Go ahead and turn to those books. If you're new to the Bible, again, you can find the book of Psalms about in the middle, then Proverbs, then the large book that you'll find next is Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 5-7. These are the kind of verses you mark in your Bible that you know, you know how to find because it all starts here. By the way, as you're turning to Isaiah 45, when I said the oneness of God, 
I'm, please don't misunderstand. I don't mean I'm affirming what's called oneness doctrine or oneness Pentecostalism because oneness doctrine denies the Trinity. But that's for conversation later. When I say oneness, I mean there's only one. Isaiah 45 is so good. I, I love this. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. Verse 6. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other I form the light. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. I, just, I love the in, intentionality of him being exhaustive there. He's, he's clear. He's bold. And if, and if, and if he's the creator, then, then that just settles it. Then turn back a couple of chapters. Isaiah 43, verse 10. I like Isaiah 45 even better, but chronologically we would look at Isaiah 43 before that. But leaving zero room for other deities in any time, in any place. Isaiah 43.10, You are my witnesses. He's speaking to Israel, declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. And then here it comes. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I mean, that just causes my heart to swell to say, yeah, this, this God has made this clear to us. We're not fumbling around wondering. And, and by the way, that's why the greatest commandment is what it is. In Matthew 22, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is to love God and only God with all that you are. Well, that makes sense if there's only one God. He deserves all of your attention and all of your devotion. The New Testament says in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, there is no God but one. James 2, 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's kind of an interesting passage. Because apparently the folks there are saying, we know we're Christians because we're monotheists. We have good theology. And James's argument is, it's good that you're monotheists. That doesn't save you because even the demons have good enough theology to be monotheists. And he's challenging the legitimacy of their salvation in James chapter 2. But nevertheless, they're monotheists, and that's right. And even the demons have this figured out. There's nothing more foundational than this. Nothing more foundational than this. And that's why I said earlier, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is secondary to this issue. And if you know me very well at all, you know I have a hard time even saying those words. (laughs) I love those words because of what they represent. Salvation is by grace alone. We don't earn it. It's through faith alone because it's all of what Christ has done for us, not what we do. Faith is, is, is dependence upon Him. Nothing we could do. And it's in Christ alone. It's all of Him. He gets all of the credit. I believe that with all of my heart. I'm staking my eternal destiny on it. But that sets on something else that's even more foundational. 
There's only one God who has a son who comes to do all this for us and applies it to us by his spirit. We have to know that. We have to own that. We have to rethink our understanding of that. I could have given this as a reason earlier, but I didn't. But before we move on to number two, this is really important that you get this. For the reasons I gave before, but let me maybe unearth that a little bit more and say, I would guess that some of you think you get this and you don't. Okay? Maybe you think it because, I don't know, you go to Omaha Bible Church and it seems like they're teaching the Bible and it seems like a good thing and you say the Bible is true and, and you think, I understand this. The reason I say that is not just because I'm trying to be a bully. I say it because when we have people fill out doctrinal questionnaires so that they can be in positions of leadership because we want to know what they believe before they teach, it's pretty interesting the answers we get when it comes to who is God. And please explain the Trinity. Pretty interesting is a really nice way of putting it. Okay? I'm not saying everybody, but we get some, some and you think, what? In fact, I went so far as to give that question as a sample answer. Explain the Trinity. Well, I gave a biblical answer which is in line with historic Christianity traced all the way back. Here's a sample of how we want you to answer the question. And even where the sample was on there, people would give the wrong answer. Let's, let's just think this one through, guys. Who is God? Do you start by saying He is the one true God who is eternal, who always has been. There never has been one before Him. There never will be one after Him. He is God. It's more important than anything. And I, and I can just say that, you know, and perspire a little bit and plead with you and raise my voice. It's important. Amen. Yeah, amen. But in all sincerity, read the Bible, starting in Genesis, and find out how God feels about and perceives misrepresentations of Him. It gets really ugly really fast. Thus the Shema. Hear, O Israel! The Lord our God is one. There's only one. This is the most important thing. We need to pay a little closer attention to God. Okay, let's move on to number two. The second biblical reality that leads people to embrace the Trinity is the existence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as God. The existence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as God. We'll look at three passages quickly and then we'll be done. If you would turn to Deuteronomy 4, we'll see that the Father is God. And this is one I could have just picked, you know, who knows how many different verses. There's no debate that the Father is God. 
But, because I don't want you to believe me, I want you to see it in the Bible. Deuteronomy 4, there's no debate. It's talking about God the Father. But let's at least see it so that we can do diligence and say, okay, there it is. Father is God. Then we're going to see the Son is God. And then we're going to see the Spirit is God. So the second reason I'm compelled to believe in the Trinity, number one being there's only one God. Number two, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. So I'm on my way to believing in the Trinity. As you're turning to Deuteronomy 4, in case you're still looking for Deuteronomy 4, I'm Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I'm going to give a a qualifier or a, a footnote that I probably didn't mention before. When theologians say person, they don't mean human. Okay, which is a a reason for confusion on this. When theologians are writing theological books, whether they're really deep ones or not so deep ones, they typically say there uh, is one God eternally existing in three persons. It doesn't mean three humans. Okay? Three persons in that they have emotions. They have intellect. They have will. Okay? They're, They're... not humans, they're persons. And here, here's, uh, here's a, maybe a better way to understand it without doing a whole theological lesson. Angels, in that sense, are persons. Not humans, persons. They have personality. Maybe it helps you to think that way. It's not quite the best way to think of it. But angels, demons are persons. Intellect, emotion, and will. God is a person. Intellect, emotion, and will. You, as a human being, are a person. Intellect, emotion, and will. That's why when we get to the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't want to say it. I do it sometimes. I slip up and refer to the Holy Spirit as it. The Holy Spirit is not an it. (laughs) Okay? The Holy Spirit is a person, therefore we say Him. And we'll see this in the text in just a little while. Okay? We have to kind of get rid of what I keep referring to week in and week out. I don't know why. Our, our Star Wars thinking. Okay? The Spirit is not the force. The Spirit is a person. And that's why we say the, the Spirit is even God. Okay, so person. Think, think, think in, the, in the right sense, right? All right. Boy, Todd, if everybody learns this stuff, they don't have to take your institute classes. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. That was quick and easy. Everybody agrees it's talking about the Father, and the Father is God. Now let's go to John chapter 1, verse 1. The Son is God. If you could find Romans, you just work your way back to John. But we see the Son is God, then we'll see the Spirit is God in Acts chapter 5. These are familiar passages. I'm trying to pick the basic ones. These are the passages you want to know because we're talking about God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, a familiar passage to you if you've been a Christian very long. If you haven't been a Christian very long, it's, it's a good one to learn and to work through. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, it's not altogether clear yet. You know, the beginning, in the beginning, sounds a lot like Genesis on purpose. And the Word was with God, And the Word was God. Well, drop down to verse 14 and we have divine interpretation of verse 1. 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now it's clear as he keeps talking, he's talking about Jesus. So, so Jesus, the living Word, was with God in a Genesis kind of sense, face-to-face fellowship, tabernacling together. And then what happens? Well, actually, we learn He actually is God. And then He came among us and dwelt among us, becoming one of us. The Son is God. This is John chapter 8 when Jesus claims that I am and the Jews want to throw rocks at Him to kill Him because He's committing blasphemy. Because He's using the Old Testament name for God and God alone. And He says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Claims to be God, clearly. Holy Spirit is God. And then we'll wrap up. Acts chapter 5 would be, I think, one of the best ones. We could go to John 14 where Jesus says, I will send you another helper. The Spirit, He uses the word that typically is another for the same kind. I wouldn't want to die on that hill, but it certainly is to be weighed in with the evidence. But in Acts chapter 5, the count of Ananias and Sapphira, those two individuals who lie and uh, got church disciplined on the spot, by the Spirit of God, because they died. And uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 3 says, but, Spirit, uh, but, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? First thing to note is you don't lie to the force. Okay? You lie to other people. That's the first hint. Then you keep reading through the text and what happens. But then at the end of verse 4 it says, you have not lied to men but to God. I draw the connection between verse 3 and verse 4. Lied to the Holy Spirit. He then interchanges a synonym. You lied to God. One God. Father is God. Son is God. Spirit is God. Oh, my brain hurts. But this ends up being tested and proven. Now, people have other solutions and they say, well, I got it figured out. You know how this works? It's not the Trinity. It's this. The Father. God is in the mode of Father. And then when Jesus comes, incarnation, He's in the mode of the Son. And then He leaves and sends another helper. And now God is in the mode of Spirit. Thus, it's historically called modalism. There are some big problems with that. Like we'll see next time, Jesus' baptism, where you have all three members of the Trinity at the same place. Doesn't work. What works is for me to step back and say, God, your ways are not my ways. Um, this, if nothing else, is proven that I am not your equal, not God, can't understand this. It certainly has proven it to me. And uh, here's the data and... Uh, It makes sense based upon the data, even though I can't get my mind completely around it. I guess, God, I'm good with you being God. (laughs) How foolish does that sound? Say, all right, this is who you are. I submit to you. I worship you. Next time, we'll look at three and four. Let me end on this. There's something in me that wants a third Timothy to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity. 
Man, that would have saved a lot of heartache throughout history. I just give that to those people at my door. Take that, Third Timothy, you know? We might, um, perhaps it'd be good to talk about why that's not the case. For example, God has given enough things that are difficult to understand that those who are not illumined by the Spirit of God say such things are foolishness. That'd be interesting to talk about. But the other thing to remember is where we see these clear examples of God manifesting Himself, showing Himself as the one true God, eternally existing in three persons. And there are those passages like Jesus' baptism. They're rich passages. They're great passages. And they show us about how great God is even in His love for us and sending His Son. Or how about even Romans chapter 8? Romans 8 doesn't get more personal. Romans 8 is just this worship-inducing, amazing passage that Christians say, that's my favorite in the whole Bible. And I love it that we get, if you will, we get Trinity, Trinitarian doctrine, in personal contexts that induce our worship to God. And in that sense, it's a whole lot better than here are the facts. Let me give you the systematic theology outline. It's undeniable that it's there, but it's in the context of this God, this Trinitarian God, this Romans 8 God is for me, ultimately for His glory. And that just makes it all personal and unique and worship-inducing. And we can talk more about it next time. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning and for the time we've had in talking about this important, historic, biblical reality. You. What's more historic than you, the eternal God who has always existed in your perfect wisdom? We're thankful that you've chosen to save us. You've come here and done everything for us. Lord, now as we have an opportunity to conclude the service and wrap up the service I'm thankful that we get to respond in a tangible way, that we don't just have to leave, that we can respond by obeying God the Son, by celebrating communion together, by eating bread and drinking wine as He commanded until He returns, acknowledging His perfect atoning death. And we have been able to to be blessed today by reading Romans chapter 8 where we see something significant about His perfect atoning death. And it has your triune fingerprints, so to speak, all over it. All of this for us. Lord, as we eat and as we drink, may we be thankful for you, the one true God, the great saving God who loved us so. In Jesus' name, amen.